Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today, we will explore why there are so few women of color, and especially black women, in statewide elective executive offices. We will hear from Dr. Kira Sanbanmatsu, senior scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. And from the front lines, we will talk with two black women politicians who have held elected office, but not a statewide office. They will share their experiences. First, let's talk with Dr. Sanban Matsu and learn about the study done by the Center for American Women in Politics. The study shows that of 76 women serving in statewide elective executive offices, only nine are women of color, a paltry 11.8%. Of that number, two are black women. And that means that there are only two black women in the nation in statewide elective executive offices. And there has never been a black woman governor. We want to know why, so we started talking with Dr. Samba Matsu to get some answers. Well, I have always been interested in the election of women to office. I am fortunate to work at the Center for American Women in Politics, which is the uh, best-known research and education center for the study of women in politics in the country. And we like to collect data and put information out for the public so that we understand how women are doing at different levels of office. We are uh, especially interested in candidates as well as office holders and looking at women by party, state, by race, and so on, so we can see how women are doing. And we've been doing this since 1971 here at Rutgers University. I am especially interested in how women of color are doing. We know that the American public is becoming more and more diverse, but our office holders don't always reflect that diversity. Um, in terms of black women specifically, we know that black women have made tremendous gains in running for office and holding office, but where things are really lagging is at the statewide level. At the statewide executive level, I, I noticed one of your earlier mm -hmm. surveys, there were three. Now, this year in 2016, there are two, a state treasurer, a Democratic state treasurer in Connecticut and a Republican lieutenant governor in, in Kentucky. So there's a decline, correct? 
Right. I mean, the numbers are, have always been pretty small. Um, but one one important statistic is that there has never been a black woman governor in our history. And I think that that statistic combined with the low numbers shows that we could do much better. Your surveys shows or your research shows that 76 women are serving in statewide elective executive offices, but yet only nine of them are women of color. That's about 11.8%, much lower than one would expect. Yes, it is. It is uh, less than expected, especially because women of color are doing better at other levels. So, for example, if you look at the share of women of color as a percent of all women state legislators or the share of women of color as a percent of all women members of Congress, things look much better there. And I think that has to do with the challenges that women of color and people of color really have running statewide. A lot of your state legislative and congressional districts that elect women of color are majority minority. And so the challenge, I think, is moving to that statewide perspective. Um, Latinas, especially if you include the state of New Mexico, which is very diverse, have had success particularly in that state, winning statewide. But when you move to other states that are not as uh, diverse, it's just been a challenge. And again, the broader population, is that the the reasoning that you're talking about when you say moving from a district that may be a majority of a minority population to a statewide system which has certainly less minority population that is the major factor i think that is a that is a major factor and i think it's just challenging for candidates of color to attract or can be challenging for candidates of color to attract a multiracial coalition at the state level and attract white voters at the same rates that they're able to do in um, in legislative districts. Now, I will say that there are other factors as well. When we have studied women of color candidates and especially black women, we what we find is that they tend to represent Uh, districts with fewer resources. They also tend to report that it's harder for them to raise money. So I think that campaign finance and fundraising is a challenge. And that can be, for some statewide races, that can be important. We also know that most women of color, and especially black women, are Democrats. And one thing that's been happening in recent years is that the Republican Party has been much more successful across the country in securing statewide office. And that's not the party where you tend to find most black women who are up and coming in politics. So partly it's um, political in terms of which party is most successful right now. It's also resource issue. And then I think there are stereotypes that women women candidates face and women of color face even 
uh, somewhat different stereotypes than, let's say, white women face. So I think there are different challenges. I, I mean, I would say there are a lot of opportunities as well. I mean, I think the success that you see as more women of color and black women especially gain in those state legislative races and in those congressional races, I think what that shows is there's a lot of talent out there. So I think it is something that if uh, gatekeepers, both political parties, funders, voters were more open-minded and interested in diversifying, I think you know it's a solvable problem and we could see a more diverse set of statewide executive office holders. Let me ask, uh, we've been talking about women of color and and especially black women uh, running for office. Have you differentiated in your studies the difference between race and gender here, or is it the combination of race and gender? That's a great question. We, you know, at the center, we tend to focus on gender. So we, most of our research is about women specifically, and then we look at racial diversity within women. So most of our research is really about women. Um, I think that a lot of the challenges that women of color face are overlap with the challenges that women overall face and the challenges that people of color overall face. I think research also shows that some of those challenges are intersectional. So there might be something specific that black women candidates face on the campaign trail that let's say white women might not face or black men might not face. So it's important to take both categories into account. We'll be back after this short message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Ohio University's online applied communication program offered by the renowned Scripps College of Communication is designed for associate degree graduates who want to further their education and advance their careers. It's been ranked first in the best online bachelor's in communication and public relations students before profits award 2015-2016 by nonprofit colleges online. In the program, you will study across multiple communication disciplines to gain understanding of how they work together and graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Communication in Applied Communication from the Scripps College. One of the premier colleges of its kind in the nation, the Scripps College of Communication, has been designated as a center of excellence by the state of Ohio. It is considered one of Ohio University's most distinguished programs by the Guide to 101 of Best Values in American Colleges and Universities. Read more about it at ohio.edu slash applied communication. Although accurate, sometimes studies reflect just cold numbers. It's often better to talk to people who have been on the front lines of an issue to get the real feeling of what's happening. So that's what we've done. We've talked with two black women who have held and run for office. 
Nina Turner was a state senator in Ohio, but she lost in her 2014 bid to become Secretary of State. And Judge Gail Williams Byers is an elected state trial judge in Ohio. They share their personal views on why there are so few black women in statewide executive offices. Senator Turner, you, you were a state senator from uh, 2008 to 2014, ran unopposed in 2010, but then in 2014 decided to run for a statewide office, Secretary of State in, in Ohio. Yes. Talk, talk to us about uh, that whole process, uh, what kind of thinking you went through, what kind of planning you went through, and what kind of obstacles you ran across. Well, it was very difficult because, you know, I was a former councilwoman in the city of Cleveland, and then to become a state senator, which my territory was increased beyond the borders of my ward in, in the city of Cleveland, and then to take that big leap of faith to run for Secretary of State in the state of Ohio, as in many states, there has never been an, an African-American or Democrats have never elected an African-American to state office in the state of Ohio. And I wish I could say that we were uh, an anomaly, but we're really not. So it was really hard from the perspective of how do I leverage enough people and infrastructure to be able to raise the money that I need to be competitive and when you're a city councilwoman or even a state senator, you really don't have to raise, as you know, the same level of dollars. When you're running statewide, you're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars. So certainly raising money was a big barrier. And then also my territory, running 88 counties in the state of Ohio. So having to go from, you know, northeast Ohio to to, to Southern Ohio, for example, where there is a big difference in terms of the numbers of people of color and other folks in the state. So it was, it, was, it was a daunting task. I think in many ways, although I did not win that election, I was successful in that I was able to raise the consciousness of the ballot box and why it is so important. Unlike many folks, I had a chance to raise money from all 50 states in this country, which is really a big deal. Uh, made that cool before uh, Senator Senator uh, Bernie Sanders just took it to a whole nother level. But I was pretty proud of what I accomplished to be able to get do a donation uh, from every single state, including D.C. and also Puerto Rico. But it was very, very, very hard. One of the things that our expert, uh, our scholar said was that one of the uh, sort of barriers to uh, black women or women of color is that uh, they do very well in legislative districts, whether it's Congress or state Senate or state representative uh, or city council, because there's a larger minority population within those uh, restricted districts. When one then tries to run statewide, as you mentioned, that gets diluted uh, a bit to, to a point where it's a whole different uh, electoral process. Would you agree with that? Oh, I absolutely agree with that. And that is why, in some ways, we know historically why African-Americans had to fight, you know, especially, I know the judge knows about this, in Ohio, where Congressman Stokes was the first African-American ever elected to Congress. That district here in Cleveland is a protected district. And so I get historically why you have to have that. 
But when you are an African-American and you try to branch out beyond either your congressional district or your legislative district, particularly if you're a member of the House, when you're a member of the Senate, it's even a larger territory. But my God, if you attempt to run statewide, yes, it is much harder because the constituency in Ohio, we have about 11 million people. And I think African-Americans make up about 11, 12 percent of the population. That's that really matches our numbers in this country as a whole. And so in terms of leveraging territory that you've never had to cover, talking to people who you've never had an opportunity to interface with, in some ways it limits if African-Americans do not get a chance to exercise that muscle in terms of traveling a state or traveling a larger territory, uh, both as somebody that's running for office, but also as one that has to then increase their territory in the fundraising space, it makes it that much harder for you to even dream or envision that you can run for statewide office and that you can one day run for the federal Senate and then that you can one day run to become the president of the United States of America. And I think it's a tragedy, a travesty in this country, if you will, that black women who were the largest voting block in 2008, nine, largest voting block in 2008 and also in 2012, we manage as a voting block to elect everybody else but ourselves. Judge, you you run in a very diverse district. Uh, it, have you noticed some of the same problems, though, that the that, that senator has? I would actually echo the senator's sentiments and and her responses in that um, just as the scholar pointed out, is that in local districts and municipalities, you see, um, where you have more of a concentration of certain populations which make winning in localities seemingly a lot easier um, and the path a lot less um, difficult than when you look into other areas where the demographics are a lot more diverse and they're a lot more different from the candidates that the people that are native to those areas are looking at. Remember that individuals like to see themselves mimicked in mm -hmm. office. And so when you travel to rural areas in Ohio that may not be um, maybe used to or may not have regularly seen African-American women in places or positions of power, then it is a very uncommon experience for them. And then that means that they have to, you know, overcome some challenges for themselves that they've not experienced since childhood, that they've not experienced many times even in their adult lives, even to get them to embracing that as an ideal um, at the ballot box. And so it has to be something, it's something that in you know certain communities that we are very accustomed to, particularly minority communities, we're used to electing black officials locally, school board, mayors, council members, um, and even we're getting to the point where we're electing more judges um, for our benches. But when we're talking about statewide office, uh, appreciate the fact that we've never elected a black woman as a governor in right. the United States of America. There's never been, we've had Governor Deval Patrick in Massachusetts who has at least broken that barrier for black men, but for mm -hmm. black women, as the Senator said, who are recognized and appreciated as the largest voting block for all for all these offices. We've managed to put everyone else in office except ourselves. That is a, a very, very challenging 
position. And to me, it seems like what we've done is we've sort of normalized behavior that we would otherwise find unacceptable. This mm-hmm. is this is really um, this is amazing to me that in 2016 we somehow normalized this and said that it's okay that we can put everyone else in office, but somehow black women can't be trusted with this kind of power because that is symbolically the message that we seem at least to be sending. Uh, let me ask both of you, and, and I'll turn back to the senator first. When you campaigned statewide, did you feel uh, or sense a out-and-out racial bias? In some cases, and certainly not in all. I mean, I have to admit that probably because of some of my work in the legislature, for example, fighting against the uh, my Republican colleagues' efforts in 2011 to take away collective bargaining rights gave me, in some cases, a more statewide, statewide profile than I otherwise would have had. So I've, I've had the benefit of fighting either for or against issues that leverage my profile among constituencies that were not necessarily my constituents. Now, in my Senate district is very diverse. It's di- diverse racially and uh, racially ethnically, and it's also diverse in a uh, economically. So unlike some of my other colleagues who tend to only represent majority African-American populations, I did enjoy the benefit of having a very diverse district, but in Northeast Ohio. But to that point, I did face some racism and discrimination. Some of it was overt and some of it was covert. But my work that I did as a legislator, I think, helped me a little more than it would otherwise help some folks. But I will tell you, and I want to share this story with you, and I know the judge knows this story. I'll never forget one of my white consultants, you know, good person and everything, but he cautioned me when I went into the southern part of Ohio. And it was the African proverb that I would always use in my speeches. And I would identify it as an African proverb. And the proverb says that one should never build their shield on the battlefield. And I would use that to say that for Democrats and progressive people, we have to get into this fight well before we get on that battlefield in terms of grooming folks and just being out there on the issues. And I'll never forget this brother pulled me to the side and he said, Senator, now you happen to be black. And you shouldn't draw too much attention to the fact that you are black. And if you continue to use this proverb and call it an African proverb, you've drawn attention to your blackness. And I'm going to tell you something. I said some things that I'm not going to say because I know this is a PG show. (laughs) But I use that as an example to identify how taken aback I was that somebody who otherwise is a good Democrat, who otherwise probably thought that they were giving me good advice, said to me that I happen to be black. And I better, I should not draw too much attention to it. Well, I don't happen to be black. I am black. I'm black on purpose. I'm black by design. And it is that kind of mentality, even among an ally, that what do you think about people to the judge's point who may not have, may not deal with people of other ethnicities on a regular basis, and also to live in a society where there's another study that shows that women, not just African-American women, but women in general who run for higher office, they should always have a man introduce them. Because if the man introduces them, that gives psychological validation 
to people that some way she is okay. And so if that is true for white women who certainly have ha not had it easy, but have it easier than African-American women, imagine what that says, that you still have to be validated by a man. And then to the point of my little you know, example that I gave you to have people who are supposed to be your allies tell you that you happen to be black is a slap in the face. Um, even in my own in, in my own county, which pisses me off to no end. When I looked at the final data, I did very well in the primary. I got 10,000 more votes than the gubernatorial candidate in the primary. But when it came to the general election in 2014, People who do not even live, my other colleagues, white colleagues, because I was the only African-American on the, the ticket and, and certainly the only African-American period, male or female. But my colleagues from other places in this state got more votes than I did in my own county, in Cuyahoga County, which to this day still chokes me up. Judge, turning to you uh, uh, on this issue, uh, you've run into racism, I know, on the bench, but... Did you run into blatant racism while you were running for judge? Oh, certainly. And what I'll say, Tom, is that the issue of racism doesn't begin and end with the time that you pull petitions. That's right. It is. It comes at the time you aspire, that That's you right. dare to dream, that you too could be a part of this process, that you could engage your government that you could be a decision maker, that you dare to claim a seat at the table or to set the agenda. That um, I, you know, I had an experience and I, I will never forget this, that I was, while I was campaigning, I would, went door to door. And one of the things that um, the Senator would always encourage me about, and I learned from Congressman Stokes is that, you know, the best kind of power is that, that sweat equity. There is, mm -hmm. there is no replacement for just knocking doors and meeting people right on their porch and talking to them. And I had been working so hard. I'd been knocking doors and speaking to neighbors. And I got to this one house in particular and I knocked on that door and the, the wife answered the door and she was very polite, but I could tell almost instantly that she was only tolerating me, that mm -hmm. she wasn't very interested in what I had to say, but had was willing to placate me enough to give me an audience. And just in the middle of my maybe two and a half minute speech or so, her husband, who was considerably larger and taller than she, came rushing to the door. And in no time, he reached, he stood behind her, but he began reaching over her shoulder and pointed in my face and told me, get out of here, little girl. You've got no chance of winning. He began reciting my one opponent's name and said for me to get off of his porch. And needless to say, the gentleman looked nothing like me, mm. nor did his wife. He was perhaps one of the rudest individuals I had ever met. And, and when he spoke to me, it was with such venom and it was with such disdain. I was awaiting him to just drop just the right kind of racial name because it looked like it came with ease for him. Mm -hmm. And so the wife became flushed with just red. Her whole face turned red with embarrassment because she had at least tolerated me. Her husband, not at all. At the time that he was done, 
he snatched the wife away from the door and slammed it in my face. Mm. That was how our conversation ended and told me, don't leave anything at his house. He didn't want to hear anything from me. At that moment time, I'll tell you, the rest of that street looked like it could have been 10 miles long. And I did not necessarily feel like knocking on not one other door because I was a balloon that had almost been deflated. Mm -hmm. But if you allow something like that to deflate you, then you know what? We'll never have a seat at the table. We will never get to the point of being decision makers. It is the very thing that feeds the idea that black women are weak and that we have no ability to, to make it through even the toughest moments. Here's what I'll tell you, is that we are indeed the backbone of this country. Yeah. It is because of black women that so many black men have risen to the top, like cream. It is because of black women that we paved the way for so many others. I'm sorry, Judge, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I'm, I'm just, we just over it, okay? I, I really am. And, and, and particularly for the Democratic Party, because we're the loyalist base of the Democratic Party, and the fact that they have not invested more time, energy, and money into ensuring that African-American women are elected to these offices that then, that not only are they at the table helping to make policy, Black women tend, and that study showed it too, to tend to be more progressive that the issues that we fight for don't only impact our community, but they impact all communities to a positive, which is another, you know, really positive benefit besides the whole diversity in those spaces of electing African-American women. But so until both major parties, don't get me wrong, but I'm calling out Democrats in particular because that's where most of our votes go. Until they make our election, the statewide offices a priority, we really need to think, rethink our loyalty. And I, and I mean that. And we defend everybody else to get to these offices but ourselves. And, and it's time out for it. Let me, ask, let me ask I a different agree. let me ask a different question and, and get your response to this, because it, it, we've touched on it a bit. When I, when I talked to the scholar uh, earlier, I, I asked her how much of this uh, paucity of elected uh, African-American women was because of race and how much was because of gender. And she couldn't really answer that. Do either of you have a sense, is it sort of a, a, a double bind of being black and being a woman? Or can you separate gender from race in, in, in your struggles? Well, I, I'll say this, and, and I, I know that the senator certainly has an opinion with regard to this, but I will say that um, with race and gender, it is a double whammy. But I will tell you that I see white women making far more strides than black women. And so if all things are equal and you, you know, made us white women, we certainly would not be equal in our struggle. And that that certainly would, there would certainly be a difference. And so I believe that although both are insidious and both are deplorable, that there are certainly um, far more of a nefarious tenor that can be assigned to the fact that we are first black and then, then that we are women. Um, as, and that would certainly just be my opinion based on my experience. Yeah, amen. I, I agree with the judge totally. Hell, it's hard to tell. I, w I wish I could tell you which one it is. But I would, if I had to pick one, I would say that race is it 
every single time, even among people who should be supportive, supportive of us and meaning people within our own party. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to electing black women statewide, whether it's Ohio, whether it's, you know, Illinois, wherever it is, it, the burden doesn't fall on Republicans because we're not Republicans. We're Democrats overwhelmingly. When it comes to that, then that burden falls on Democrats. And it's just really funny that when we're running for office, they seem to know the ethnicity of the D that's of, 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 the, of the person that's running when it comes to, to black folks. So I would I agree with the judge wholeheartedly. I think it's more race than gender, but both certainly have an impact on whether we're elected or not, how much money we can raise. I mean, if we had time, we could show you our fundraising sheets where one organization, the same organization will give me and or the judge money and then they'll give a white person, whether it's a male or a female, a different amount of money. And usually that amount is 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 much more. Now I will say though a caveat to my run in 2014 which was not necessarily I think my fight to to preserve collective bargaining rights certainly gave me an advantage among organizations. And so I think I tended in 2014 and you know in all fairness to get a little more money from certain organizations, whereas when I was a state senator, I did not, le I mean, I was still a state senator, but before I was running for secretary of state, I didn't necessarily leverage that kind of money from them. But there are incidences more times than not where black women will not get the same amount of money as their white colleague, whether it's a, a woman or a female, or excuse me, a, a woman or female, a woman or a male being white. And one other example I want to give is that every single Democrat in 2014 was endorsed by the FOP the fraternal order of police, except for yours truly. Even though my son is a police officer and my husband is a retired police officer, they managed to endorse every single Democrat but me. And I know we don't have two hours, but I'm sure the judge and I could give you many, many more stories that highlight how there is a double, triple, quadruple standard in this country when it comes to black women being elected to office. And, and Republicans are no better, don't get me wrong, but the reason why I'm calling out our party is because our party is the party where our people give the most of the votes to. I started studying this and, and looking at the figures, and I, I had a personal uh, emotional feeling of both anger and depression. And uh, I'm sure my feelings were minor compared to, to yours. How do we get beyond this? How, how, how is this? how can we make this history instead of contemporary? Well, welcome to our world, I want to say. Look, Judge, you go, because I talk last, but uh, welcome to our world. <laughs> Tom, I think that um, we've got a lot of work to do. I, I believe that we are at a stage where we believe we are singing the last of the chorus to We Shall Overcome. And quite frankly, we still at the verses. Mm. We have not traveled nearly as far as we believe we have. It is just more um, covert, um, to take the senator's point, than it is overt. Um, and so we've got some barriers to break down. We have to begin having more candid conversations just about the reality of where we are. Yeah. And the fact that we are addressing it for where we are right now is a huge step forward. Because understand, 
how much of this information is still unknown to black women and to our white counterparts alike. And that they are comfortable not knowing mm-hmm. because there is a certain level of okayness, if you will, with keeping the status quo. Some are just not comfortable with sharing power. There is this idea, I believe, that as I said before, Black women can't handle power. There is the perception that if you are passionate about anything, that must equate to anger. Oh, just let me get in on this. Yes, (laughs) the angry Black woman. And you know what? You damn right, we angry. We got a lot to be angry about in this country. But go ahead, Judge. But that is so key because that is a stereotype about us, Thomas, that that even some of our so-called white allies are comfortable with that 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 we're not assertive. You know, we're not we're we're angry all the time. But we have to me, we have a right to be angry in this country from social injustice, economic injustice, political injustice. You name it. Our babies dying on the street. You know, our communities not being invested in. So, yeah, I own it. Yeah, I'm angry. I'm angry about a lot of stuff. But but that strength in us is often turned into a deficiency. And I'm sorry, Judge, because I I just had, because that was another thing I was cautioned. I was told I should be more like President Obama when I was running for statewide office. Go ahead, Judge. I'm sorry. It's it's quite all right. In fact, I encourage you, Senator, to to chime in. I do believe that these are salient points um, because, Tom, you ask a really good question, which is how do we get from, you know, contemporary to her story. Um, and I want to get to a point where we are talking about this in the past tense. You know, our young people are learning about 9-11 as part of history. And I would love for this to be part in just another chapter in their history books. And we are still writing history with each passing day, but we've got to be prepared and willing to break down some obvious misnomers about what we think and believe and perceive about each other. My passion about how I feel about individuals, whether it's a poor person in East Cleveland, Ohio, or a poor person in Appalachia Mm -hmm. in Athens, is the same passion because it flows from the same place. And so my fight is just as hard for them because it comes from a common source, but it doesn't mean that I am unable to harness my emotion and channel it in the right place and lead appropriately. And I think that what's happened over time is that there's a belief that Black women are unable to control themselves. We can't give them that much power. And also the the knowledge and understanding that many of us aren't born with silver spoons in our mouths. We don't come from money. And so it takes money to fuel elections and to get to those positions where we are the decision makers. And we're decision makers in our homes, but we can't be trusted to make decisions outside of our homes. And when we are given the opportunity to do that, we quite frankly do pretty okay. We do better than our non-minority counterparts. And frequently we're the ones that are blazing the trail and frequently don't get credit for it. Amen. And it's a pipeline, Thomas. I mean, I I agree with everything the judge said. And you said, how can we make sure? First of all, there's an awareness that needs to take place. So thank you 
for highlighting this on your show. So we have to make people aware. There has to be a consciousness. And then secondly, once we're conscious about it, both non-minority folks and people of color, both, because African-Americans and other people of color have been socialized in the same country that says that black women and other women of color are not capable of doing this job. So there has to be a consciousness. Secondly, I would say a commitment. There needs to be a commitment from the power brokers in this country that they will use all of their networks because the judge made a very important point. If you don't have a network where you can call up Hollywood types or you can call up you know, people of wealth or, or people of, of influence, then that makes the job of trying to run for statewide office even that much more difficult because you do need money for the mission. We need to reform Citizens United. We got to do away with Citizens United in this country. And more people of color, especially women, would have better, would have a better time running and winning if we had publicly financed elections so that everybody is equal from the start. But again, the status quo, both Democrat and Republican, they don't want that. Some of them are saying that they want it, but they really don't want it because that would leverage the playing field in a way that I think that would really upset the apple cart. But we, we gotta have a consciousness. We have to have commitment from power brokers, organizations, both organizations and individuals. And then we as a constituency, meaning black and brown folks, need to make sure that there is a consequence when our party does not use every power at its disposal to make sure that African-American women get elected to these statewide offices, that then is a leveraging point if that woman ever decides to run for the federal Senate. We have never had, we've only had one black woman in the U.S. Senate, that's Carol Mose, Senator Carol Mosley Brown from Chicago, only one in the history of this country. You may have another one. I know that Kamala Harris is vying for that, you know, right now in California, but there's only been one. And to your point, there's only been one, uh, never been an African-American woman governor. And my God, there's never been an African-American a woman as president of the United States of America. But the way we access those levers or even to dare to dream to get there is by winning statewide office and also by, you know, being in the U.S. Senate. And everybody knows it. So consciousness, commitment, and consequence to make sure that one day, maybe we're talking about this as if, as if it was history. Senator Turner, Judge... Williams Byers, thank you, both of you, so much for, for talking with us. I don't want to cut you off. We're, we're sort of running short of time, but I'm going to give you one last shot. If either of you want to say something that I haven't asked you, I've been trying to facilitate the conversation, but maybe I didn't hit some points that are important, and I want to give you that opportunity to do that. So I'm opening the floor here for one last comment. I'm going to give it to the senator. Um, I, I agree. I think the consciousness, commitment, and consequences is so important. So, Yeah, amen. And thank you, Thomas, for the questions. And hopefully your listeners will, will share this with others because we, we need a team. We need a team of conscious people. There's a book that I want to recommend called Brown is the New White. And that book is really about leveraging the political power that we're talking about right now. And, and in that book, it talks about how the majority of the electorate are people of color and progressive whites. 
And if we can get people of color and progressive whites to really, really put their time and attention to the matter of making sure that black women are elected to executive offices all over this country, we can begin to change the dynamic of this country. Because again, when black women lead, man, we lead for everybody. We have a heart and a passion for everybody's pain, not just the pain of those who were born with black skin, but the pain of those who are poor, the pain of those who are downtrodden, the pain of those who who would dare to dream that they could have a better life and that the lives of their children could be made better. That is the space that most black women hold. And when we come to that space, baby, we bring the thunder for everybody. We have a consciousness, but we need, we need, we need other folks to care enough about that 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 missing uh, point, if you will, in in the American electorate enough to say that we're not going to rest and that this is not just a black problem, that there are not more black women elected to statewide office, that this is an American problem. And let's take it on as a challenge together. Thank you very, very, very much. I appreciate it. Tom, thank you. Thank you so much for shining some light on this issue, Thomas. It means a lot to us. Thank you. Today, we've been talking to Dr. Kira Sanbud-Mansu. She's senior scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics and former state senator Nina Turner and elected municipal court judge Gail Williams-Byers about the dilemma of why there are only two black women in the whole country in statewide executive offices. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. If you'd like to rate our podcast or review it, please do so. If you have questions or comments, you can direct them to me via email. That goes to Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Again, that's Hodson at ohio.edu. Thank you.